Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to New Books in Genocide Studies. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm a host on the channel. And today I'm thrilled to talk with Sam Moyne about his terrific new book, Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War. Sam is the Henry R. Luce Professor of Jurisprudence at Yale University, and he's the author of several previous books. As I read this book, I remembered a Star Trek episode that I watched when I was a kid. Uh, and, and, and looking back on it, the title is A Taste of Armageddon. And in this Star Trek episode, uh, our intrepid heroes of Star Trek, Kirk and Spock and so on, find a planet which had been engaged in a long-running conflict uh, that had cost it uh, thousands or hundreds of thousands or perhaps millions of lives. I don't even remember exactly how many. But it was a conflict fought virtually. The computers would decide who had died. Uh, and those people would report to a station where they would be killed. And as Kirk uh, and Spock ask about this, the explanation they get is that real war is too hard and too painful and too costly. And so they have evolved or created a system which minimizes the cost of war. Uh, but along, as, as, but in order to do this, um, casts millions or hundreds of thousands of people to be die, to be killed as a result of virtual decisions. Uh, Kirk, as his, his want, uh, destroys the computers, and the the people they had um, were were who had been conducting this war are in despair uh, because they believe that war is inevitable and nothing can prevent it, and the best possible answer to this is to minimize its cost. And Kirk, in his usual rational enlightenment fashion, goes ahead to claim that war is in fact a human creation and can be harnessed or eliminated as they would have known if they had not limited the cost. And that episode struck me and came back to mind as I read Sam's book, which is indeed a book about this question of the, the seemingly paradoxical challenge. Can, can making more war more humane actually make it more common? Uh, and has that been what has happened in the recent past? Uh, it's a great book and I learned a lot about it and I'm teaching comparative genocide this semester and I've spent the last week or so regaling my students with um, stories that I heard in it. And so I'm looking forward to talking to Sam uh, about this book and exploring this issue. So Sam, thanks for joining us and welcome to New Books in Genocide Studies. Thanks so much for having me. 
So Sam, we always start the same way, uh, which is to ask you to say a little bit about yourself and and how you became interested in this question. Well, I'm uh, uh, I'm an American. I'm from St. Louis, Missouri. I, I grew up there and went to college there and became a historian and a law professor. Uh, and in my youth, which was the 1990s, I got excited about the, the prospects that American force could make the world a better place. And I worked in the White House for a bit as a law student on the Kosovo bombings. And, and it was really kind of living through the, the years after 9-11 that I saw my country, which had already kind of gone to war supposedly for good causes, um, go to a lot more wars and wars that made not just the world, but this country worse off. And I decided to write the book when I, I, I noticed that Barack Obama, who so many people voted for because he might end some wars, um, actually said in speeches that he had to continue American war, but was making it kinder and gentler, more humane, and maybe in a sense, moral. And I wanted to understand how could it, how could this be possible and, you know, get at the debates that even before Captain Kirk, uh, you know, folks have been having around the world about whether to try to constrain war from happening or to make it humane when it comes. So how does this, you've published several previous books. How does this book fit into the previous work you've done? Is it a continuation of other ideas you've been exploring uh, or is it a departure? A little of both. You know, I, I, Mm -hmm. I've written some books um, on ethics and I've written some books on human rights politics and probably my best known book from about 10 years ago called the last utopia is about how human rights became well known in the 1970s. Um, and I definitely am following that book in arguing that the laws of war, which are very old, you know, biblical, um, at, at, at least um, in the Western tradition, um, were were made more humane in the 1970s, and in 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 the requirements they placed on states and militaries. But in other ways, it's a departure because um, I think I'm. I'm, I'm, I'm more suspicious of um, the laws of war than I, I was in writing about human rights because my worry is that um, if, we, if we get so concerned with um, making war humane under these new laws, we may end up perpetuating an evil we could end. And I don't, I don't think human rights are... are, are yeah, you know, I'm not suspicious of human rights in that same way. Um, so it's it's different, but it's it's definitely about the same period, you know, my lifetime, uh, because I think in both cases something new is happening in international politics, and it has to do with kind of ethical claims that come to be, you know, credible to people in an, an arena in which so many people once thought it was just about power and violence. Mm-hmm. And for listeners, uh, Sam did an interview on the book he mentioned, a podcast interview oh, several years ago, and I encourage you to go back and listen to it. 
Um, so why start the book with Tolstoy? So for I, I start with the, with Leo Tolstoy for a few reasons. One, you know, the primary reason is that it just ha- so happens that he was present at the creation of the idea that we could use international law to make war more humane in the 1860s while Tolstoy was writing war and peace. Um, some Swiss gentlemen called European states together and got them to agree to let them take care of wounded soldiers on battlefields. And that became the red cross and the rules they wrote, the first Geneva convention are the kind of wellspring of all the laws of war later, including the Geneva Conventions of 1949, which were talked a lot about a lot during the War on Terror. But Tolstoy wasn't just present. He noticed this project and said it was bad. And so, you know, it's the kind of thing that surprises you because how could anyone think it's bad to make war less brutal? And I don't. Um, but I, I try to show that as he grew old and became a, a pacifist and vegetarian, Tolstoy began to think that um, there, there were some risks that making war humane could court. And I think the truth is that he was a prophet before his time because those risks only became real in our lifetimes when war actually did become more humane and the law governing it was actually transformed and taken seriously for the first time. Um, and so it turns out that Tolstoy was, was kind of prescient. Um, and I wanted to kind of show how prescient he was and how long it took then for the syndrome he worried about to come online. Yeah, I was really, it was, I was intrigued. You, you compared this to the debate about slavery and the dangers some people saw about making slavery more humane. Can, can you just kind of, it's a little bit of a sideline, but can you unpack that a little bit and talk about how these two are similar? Absolutely. So, you know, actually it's Tolstoy's analogy and he also mm-hmm. compared the project of making more humane to the project of making uh, the slaughter of non-human animals humane. Mm-hmm. And he's... The, the, what he's trying to do is identify some, 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 the way these risks that he sensed could play out. So in the slavery analogy, he's, he's living at the time of uh, the abolition of serfdom in his own Russian empire and the abolition of, of slavery in this country through the U.S. Civil War. And he says... You know, remember that in the early 19th century, there was no abolitionist movement or not a big one. And most reformers were trying to create humane slavery and they made a deal with slave owners. They didn't contest their right to own other people. So these slaveholders, um, you know, got to keep their slaves, but reformers who demanded humane slavery, um, asked for them to treat those slaves less cruelly. And Tolstoy thinks back and says, this was a a bad compromise um, because it kind of conceded the the real evil and then tried to kind of blunt its effects. And he said, what if we're making the same mistake with war? Now, of course, 
war could be different, maybe we can abolish it or we can't gather forces to abolish it or keep one war from happening that's unjust. And then it makes sense to do what, uh, you know, the reformers who created humane slavery did. But maybe maybe the analogy holds. Maybe like we could have, if not no war, then fewer wars. And we should focus on that um, rather than kind of making deals with the military, taking whether they can fight and whether states can fight off the table and just begging them to do it more humanely. And you, your book, in your book, you, you, you show how there is some effort to make war humane, but there are really significant limitations to the agreements and treaties that, that are created. So, so what are some of the ways they tried to limit um, or, or, or thinkers and actors and politicians and um, uh, advocates tried to limit war in the 19th and early 20th century? And what, what were some of the limitations they, uh, that, that continued? So, so Tolstoy's um, suggestion that was, was a pacifist one, and he thought the remedy was for soldiers to uh, you know, refuse to serve. But I, I try to follow how others invented the anti-war movement or peace movement and tried to figure out how they could get states to agree not to fight, uh, to settle their differences, um, and so forth. Meanwhile, there, there was a crew, the Red Cross and, and their followers, who were trying to, to kind of follow up on that first Geneva Convention for the sake of wounded soldiers and um, do things like ban weapons or restrict um, kind of hospitals from being targeted, above all to protect POWs when they're captured. And mostly um, the, these don't really work in, in making war more humane um, for, for kind of three reasons. Um, the first is, is really that most of the laws of war actually allow the military to, to, to do more stuff and to claim necessity um, to override any other constraints. Then there's the fact that like these rules didn't apply to certain kinds of warfare, especially colonial warfare against non-whites. Um, and then finally, even when they did apply, like in World War I, um, they were just dropped when push comes to shove. And so the, that's why Tolstoy was in a sense too early because you could only run the risk of perpetuating war by making it humane if you actually do it. And for more than a century, it just didn't happen. Now, after World War II, the Geneva Conventions were forged. But the reason I claim that the 1970s were so important is that after decolonization, the victims of all those colonial wars in the new states of the world pushed for genuinely humane rules of war. And Europeans who were no longer fighting those colonial wars, having lost their empires, were, were in position to agree. Finally, Americans had lost the Vietnam War and gotten shamed in the international community over My Lai, um, this terrible atrocity that was re revealed in 1969. And so the, the, the moment was right to actually kind of 
do what had never been done. And I point to two big innovations. One is that finally states agree that they can't target civilians. And as I narrate, they've been doing that for decades with the rise of aerial bombardment, but they agree to stop. And then they agree to limit collateral damage. So um, they say, well, okay, we'll only aim at, at military targets. We'll also agree that if too many civilians will die, even when we strike a military target, we'll, we, we won't proceed. That's known as the rule of proportionality. And both of these rules became central to war, great power war ever since. And um, I, I try to show how not just humanitarians like Human Rights Watch, but big forces in the military itself respond by trying to take the newly humane rules of war seriously. And the result was to transform war in our time. Let's, let's come back to that in just a second. Um, and, and, and go backwards briefly, because of course Wilson talked about World War One as a war to end all wars, and there is some effort in the twenties and thirties to to uh, re- make bring that into place. So uh, probably most people know the story of the League of Nations, but there's other kind of ways that people try and prevent war, forestall war. So so can you say a little bit about how how they try and create this pacifist vision and and why it doesn't work. And then maybe you don't talk about this, at least as I read the book, but, but maybe speculate a little about some of the ways they pick up on this effort to prevent war in the aftermath of um, both the US and the Soviet Union getting nuclear weapons. Um, how does that tradition of, of being afraid of war fit with this early, earlier attempt to, to end war as a phenomenon? Great. So I mentioned that after Tolstoy, lots of new activists really focus on peace and struggle to bring it at least to the transatlantic zone of the kind of America and the European empires. Um, And they propose things like an arbitration arrangement. Um, They propose the League of Nations after World War One, which Wilson, of course, had hoped at least for white states across the Atlantic would settle, you know, belligerency for good. The trouble is America isn't willing to join the League of Nations and serve as a guarantor of that European peace. Um, You know, there are other things like, you know, there are um, disarmament conferences in the middle of the years between the two world wars um, in, in hopes of, you know, making um, the kind of stakes of war when it comes just less. But of course, World War II did come. And it's in this circumstance, I try to show that America does engage um, with the European peace. And if you like, guarantees it, but it's at a high price because America also signs up to fight wars around the world of the sort Europeans had been fighting for centuries. Now, the United States, you know, even before it was a country, involved lots of native violence that was brutal on both sides. And we conquered the Philippines and 
engaged in a pretty brutal counterinsurgency there at the turn of the 20th century. But after World War II, there's endless intervention and war is really brutal. So I try to show that the war in the Pacific at, at the end of World War II and Korea and Vietnam are, um, you know, it are about America's global wars before humanity comes. Um, but, you know, it's, it, it, it's through those same processes that European peace is secured and um, America becomes less a force for peace than freedom. I mean, the Soviet Union claims to be a peace power. It, 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 it takes over Eastern Europe. But compared to the United States, it's not in doing big military intervention globally. And America is a kind of missionary um, power, kind of tolerating lots of global violence for the sake of anti-communist freedom. And so it becomes very hard after World War II for ordinary Americans to mobilize for peace um, it seems like the the other side's agenda and a mask for their totalitarianism. So, um, you know, this is this is the situation when the Vietnam War comes, which does create you know the the biggest peace movement since um, the interwar years in the United States. And what I try to show is that um, the 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 terms of debate over Vietnam after 1965, when the United States escalates troops uh, there, is really around whether the war should be fought, uh, principally. And the when when Milai is revealed in the first instance, and people get concerned about atrocity, it's for the sake of ending that war, um, because you know. If you've lived through, you know, World War II, you think that if war breaks out, it's going to be brutal. And, you know, our ancestors had the idea that keeping war from happening will keep war crimes from happening, while the reverse isn't true. And so that's why I see Vietnam as both bringing about our era of humane war, but also a kind of counterpoint to the way we think about war. We so often kind of isolate war crimes, including genocide, of course, for our, our moral opprobrium, you know, and don't focus as much on the fact that these happen most often during wars. So I wonder, I've been doing some work on Algeria lately, French Algeria, and and of course this is there's there's huge amounts of debates in front debate and argument in France about the way in which this war is conducted and uh, the particular kinds of interrogations that go on, simul not simultaneously but close in time. There are massacres in in, in Indonesia. Um, how do those more and, and British oppression in, in Kenya? How how do those more global manifestations of imperial wars. I guess that's a reasonable term. We'll use that term for now without question. How does that play into this debate? So what you could say is that Europeans are in advance of, of the United States because they're, they're, they're in, a, in a distinctive position um, after World War II. Um, they, 
they fight, you know, their own counterinsurgencies brutally, they lose as America does in Vietnam. But the result is that they're that they're out of the business of formal empire. Um, and so in the 70s, they've had these big debates over torture in Algeria and over, you know, co- you know concentration camps uh, in the, you know, Kenyan emergency. Um, I mean, actually, it's only much later that we know how bad it really was. Um, but the, the, in a sense, they can try to wash their hands of, of, of imperial violence um, in the 1970s and since. Um, and they're also part of the emerging European human rights regime. The United States is off on its own. It, it is, it's fought Korea brutally, but there hasn't been a big outcry. Um, it, it's, it fights Vietnam brutally. Um, and that's when the outcry comes. And by this point, Europeans are, are kind of attempting to rehabilitate themselves and they join with the new post-colonial states to push for humane war. Um, and so America is just, let's say 10 years behind, um, you know, and, and it is, and yet the, the difference is that after the 70s, it's still going to fight a lot of global wars. And so my thesis is that where Europeans certainly assisted with a lot of uh, American wars um, in the Cold War and since, it's it's the United States that's kind of leading the charge, building the coalitions, doing the dirty work. Um, and therefore, it's kind of the the the, the scene of this humanization process because it's actually still fighting unlike european empires which have shut down uh uh, beforehand and we've been kind of talking about that um significant uh development that happens the change in the discussion and the discourse in the 70s i wonder if you could say a little bit about two other parts of that that you identify in your book. One is the uh, elevation of the Holocaust in European and American memory. Uh, and the other is the growth of human rights institutions like Human Rights Watch. What did, what did those play in this pivot that happens in the 70s? Well, it's, it, it's, you're getting at, at some absolutely pivotal features, I think, of the story and, you know, one of unintended consequences. So after World War II, of course, there's a genocide convention there are there are nuremberg trials but often it's 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 thought to be a holocaust trial whereas in fact it was principally um a an aggression trial in the spirit of that commitment i mentioned after world war ii which has a lot of roots that the the priority is is constraining the outbreak of war and so adolf hitler's henchmen are tried at nuremberg for starting the war. Um, and of course there are, there is attention to war crimes and crimes against humanity. Um, but it's, it's, it's not given as much attention and actually the Holocaust is, is very little, um, dealt with at, at the, the international military tribunal. Um, it, if you like the world wasn't ready, um, to center Jewish death in, the, their understanding of what had gone wrong in World War II. 
in a later generation, people are ready. And I think Americans in particular live through a big change where they have not seen much moral problem in the civilian harm they've perpetrated, you know, in the end of World War II over the Japanese islands or in Korea. Um, in, in Vietnam, there's the beginning of a moral transformation and it goes along with the, the memory of World War II, which is changing to feature Jewish death. And, you know, people begin to learn in, in school and in, from, you know, media that what goes wrong in war is civilian harm. And that's, that's the evil to oppose. Um, meanwhile, uh, it, as anti-war movements of the Vietnam era are cratering, um, there are new humanitarian movements like the rise of Human Rights Watch. And sometimes, often, like in the case of Human Rights Watch, they commit not to saying whether wars are just or unjust or legal or illegal, and only to focus on how they're fought and whether they run afoul of these new rules prohibiting inhumanity um, in the fighting, uh, in the targeting. And so this is like Tolstoy's syndrome starting to come online, because remember, he said, the trouble with humane slavery is that we agree with the slaveholders not to contest their right to own slaves and focus on their treatment. And these new humanitarians, in a sense, compromise with the state, never saying whether the wars are just or unjust, legal or illegal, and only focusing on how they're fought. Um, and, you know, that's not a problem because we should have such groups. But if the rest of us are taking the greater humanity of wars to um, to kind of vouch for their larger morality than we might allow these new humane wars to kind of go on forever. And that's really my story of what happened after 9-11. I don't think the rise of Holocaust memory or human rights groups is like to blame or was a mistake. On the contrary, this is about a rise in moral consciousness of great evils. But there's, there's a, a paradox and perversity that in a way, taking those kinds of evils seriously um, goes along with a kind of blindness, um, a forgetting of, of what our ancestors knew, which is that the biggest evil is war itself. Mm. So there's an argument that is made by some that the professionalization of the American army has played a role in this because yeah. so few people actually in, are engaged in combat. Does that make sense to you? It does. And, and it explains a lot, but then I think we should note some limits to the explanation. So I have a passage in the book about the debates around the elimination of the draft and the move to an all volunteer force. And it's quite fascinating to go back and see how some people worry that um, it will make war easier. Um, others insist it'll make it, it harder for executives to, to, to go to war. But, you know, I think it explains, I mean, it's a big explanation for why, um, you know, 
the average citizen is is not that conscious of wars because no one he knows or she knows has been forced to go fight them. Um, that had consequences um, after 2001, but we should still note that the wars on popularity was, was at its height under George W. Bush when a lot of body bags were coming home, and those were volunteers. But nonetheless, their deaths, um, American deaths, did lead people to get upset. And you probably remember Cindy Sheehan, whose son died, who led a kind of mini anti-war movement. In the end, you know, what I try to show is that the war on terror had a second form. Um, and this new form is doesn't rely on troops almost at all or very much insofar as it's about um, armed drones and special forces. And in a way, it, it doesn't matter whether the whether American soldiers are conscripted or volunteer because the new form of humane war didn't rely on very many soldiers anyway. Um, and so I would say the, the argument about the draft is really important to have, but we should also recognize that the kind of war we've, we've invented in our time is not one that even restoring the draft might affect because you don't need soldiers to kill people with drones. Yeah. Um, you talked about 9-11. Seems, seems that there might have been a reasonable possibility that this emphasis on humanity and warfare would have would have gone away in the face of, of this um, attack and, and the American response. How is it that, that America remains at least mostly committed to humanity and warfare? So this is an edgy part of the book, and I think, you know, it, it could ruffle feathers. But, you know, the, the general view is that after 9-11, George W. Bush and his lawyers um, took the gloves off and they did something outrageous, which was to lift the constraints of humane war. And of course, that's true. But I think we should recognize that the very fact that they did lift those constraints testifies to how strong they'd already become. After all, um, there'd been no constraints of that kind for most of American history. And when we go to war in Vietnam, what's amazing is that our politicians announced that they'll follow the Geneva Conventions and make our, our South, South Vietnamese ally follow them, not because they matter, but because they don't matter, because you can you can break them with impunity and no one will care. And so I, I kind of read what happens immediately after 9-11 as, in a sense, proof of the humanization of war. And then uh, I try to show that most of the debate, and especially around Abu Ghraib and torture, concern the need to reimpose these standards uh, in, a, in an atmosphere when there's almost no challenge to the interventions in Afghanistan and Iraq, um, while there's a lot of concern around how the war is fought. And I don't want to trivialize the hard work that went into making George W. Bush's war humane, but we shouldn't, we shouldn't neglect in a historical perspective, 
that it was it was only a couple of years that those standards were dropped. And the big difference from Vietnam and My Lai is that our debate around Abu Ghraib actually debugged the war on terror and and it didn't end on the contrary it became endless and more legitimate in the eyes of a lot of observers so if we don't um kind of recognize the limitations of the the concern after 9-11 with humanity both because it was already strong and because it was reimposed relatively um quickly then we miss the real drama of that moment in which humanity ended up um, uh, helping kind of legitimate a war that goes on even today. Yeah, and what's maybe most striking about that is the contrast between the, loudness is not the right word, but the, the, the way in which this debate was carried out in public um, around and after Abu Ghraib and, and what I see at least is the relative silence surrounding the decisions uh, under President Obama to expand drone warfare and and um, expand the American presence across the world using new technology. Um, so, so can you say a little bit about Obama's decision-making and the thinking behind it and how that fits into your argument? So he, he runs as the first of, of presidential candidate, um, but not the last since everyone since his one has done it against aspects of American war. He beats Hillary Clinton in the nominating contest because she has voted for the Iraq war. That's, that's a tradition now because Donald Trump amazingly, you know, meretriciously came out against the Iraq war in the nominating contest with his Republican rivals, beat them and went on to beat Hillary uh, again. And then Joe Biden runs as, as a, an opponent of, of what he calls forever war. But Obama in office is also the first in the tradition of, of anti-war candidates who become endless war presidents because he, he's a genius uh, and he he decides that he needs uh, to reinvent the war on terror um, beyond the brutal heavy footprint form that has brought Bush's popularity to all time lows by the end. And so he says, we'll make it less heavy footprint, more light and no footprint, special forces, drones, and we'll make it humane. And within the first year, he does so. He pivots to drones. He um, he goes to Oslo to pick up the Nobel Peace Prize and says openly, although the drone program is still secret, that um, that while America has to fight terrorism until it's eradicated, it will promise to do so humanely. Four years later, when he rolls out the drone program, he says, don't worry. Um, the alternative to humane war is brutal war, and you don't want that. And uh, with in the absence of peace, you'd much rather have humane war. And so 
that's a situation in which we we kind of we hear him and we're reassured um and you know i i i'm i didn't mention tolstoy's analogy with the slaughter of non-human animals but it's like he says when you um kind of take solace in the fact that your meat is slaughtered for you more humanely and eat it anyway. Um, and even though, you know, the rise of humane slaughterhouses has, has entrenched meat eating and made it, you know, easier for more animals to die. And, you know, Obama kind of understands that logic that his audience, um, will, kind of accept a deal um if if i make the war more humane you will let me fight it and that's where we are even today after biden's withdrawal from afghanistan so in the the conclusion you kind of offer your concerns for the future um so i guess the first question about this is to ask you to to share with the audience, where where might this art go if it continues? So, you know, technologically, we've seen the not just the rise of drones, but the experimentation with so-called autonomous weapon systems, sometimes, you know, called killer robots or slaughter bots. Um, and, you know, I, I close the book by imagining what could happen if we continue to fight a kind of global um, counter-terror in search of permanent security while making our, our means of doing so more and more humane? Because the truth is, even drones um, do a better job in avoiding civilian harms harm than other methods. Um, and for that matter, most of the time they're surveilling not killing anyone and special forces take unprecedented care when they land in a place. We saw that on, in the Trump years when he sent a, a, uh, I mean, most famously when he sent a, an armed band to take out the leader of the Islamic state. And when they land, their first step is to isolate the innocent and, you know, our, Omar al-Baghdadi took two of his family members with him in down a tunnel and they had to die, but a lot of others survived um, because if you like, this was counterterrorism with care. Um, and, you know, my, my, my worry is that with, with drones and these new autonomous weapon systems, we're heading into an era in which we realize war can, can have its violence edited out to an amazing extent. Now, of course, there are always bad apples and honest mistakes in war. Um, and, you know, there's so much violence still in war, and but there's less. And we could imagine, to me, what's a chilling future where we have global policing and kind and gentle policing robots to try to achieve this security for us and us thinking it's okay because it's humane. And that doesn't seem like a good destination from where I sit. 
I mean, I'm fine. You're fine. But of course, we're at the top of a hierarchy and are not the ones policed in our cities or around the world. And I don't think it's good enough to push for it to be humane policing. And so my my plea is to readers to kind of think about that outcome and whether it's one that we should want. In the last couple of years, maybe five years, we've also seen the resurrection of fears of uh, great power conflict. We've seen novels written about it, P.W. Singer's P, uh, Ghost Fleet. We've seen 2000, 2034, I think that's the year identified yeah, in, yeah. in this. Um, we've certainly seen a spate of articles. Are we in a new coal? Is, do you, can you imagine a world in which the balance again shifts and the primary driver to this discussion is actually about eliminating war rather than about making war humane or... Is, are we so far down the humaneness side of this argument that true pacifists will never kind of tip the scales in their favor again? You know, it's so hard to predict. If, if, if you know, the, the, if a Cold War comes, um, you know, like the original Cold War, it may not involve head-to-head contests. It may involve a global Cold War. And of course, many of those engagements tended to be the shadow wars. Um, Not all, you know, Korea wasn't, Vietnam wasn't. Um, But we can imagine as long as America fights shadow wars, that they'll be not just, um, you know, less visible, but more humane. Um, Because that's now part of the conditions for making war legitimate with a certain powerful part of the American public. Um, you know, even Donald Trump, as I narrate, even though he appeals to another part of the American public that and and calls for more brutality, he can't get it done um, because, you know, humanity is at, entrenched to in a, an extraordinary extent now in the military, in, in, in the way it thinks it, about the warrior's honor uh, and in the way the way that military operations are governed, and 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 yet, of course, a great power war, a conventional war, um, could well lead the gloves to be taken off, um, not briefly as George W. Bush did, but kind of permanently. Still, you know, the these rules aren't just American rules; they've been, you know written into international law for all powers. And it's not like they're um, necessarily permanent, but they're not easy to bracket and just wipe away as if they hadn't been. So my sense is that, you know, more confrontation will lead to more calls for peace. I doubt that the rise of more and more policing will on its own will lead to more peace, even if I think it should. Um, But, you know, revolutions and kind of morality and thought have happened before. We talked about one, the rise of Holocaust memory, and there's no reason as far as I can see why we can't raise consciousness just as we're doing in the context of American policing about, about our policies. You know, we're, we're in, in, in a debate in American policing in, in response to, you know, horrendous violence, 
um, about whether there should be more humane policing or less policing. And I just think we could imagine a debate about that at the global level, too. We've chosen the first more humane policing, but I think just as at home, we can imagine just less policing of our fellow citizens. We could imagine the same for our fellow humans at the global scale. So to conclude our discussion of the book, I'll just kind of ask an open-ended question. This is uh, at least the the home channel for this interview is about mass atrocity violence. So I'll, I'll, I'll just ask you to say something and take this wherever you want to go with this. How has this development of a of a culture of emphasizing the humane in conflict, how has that shaped responses to or ideas about uh, genocide and ethnic cleansing and other kinds of mass atrocity violence? Well, it, it you know, the, the rise of, of that concern is central to the story because um, it, if, if, if ethnic cleansing and genocide along with, you know, crimes against humanity and war crimes are central to your moral vision. You will do things like respond to Bosnia, maybe by dithering about intervention, but then setting up an international tribunal. You'll respond to Rwanda uh, by missing your chance if there was one, but, but setting up an international tribunal. You'll respond to Kosovo with, in the way that you know Bill Clinton did, and I was involved in that um, it, as a as a lowly intern, um, kind of preventing genocide by force of arms. Um, and you know, one of my points in the book is to say these are these are essential and noble concerns, but in a way they've they've been taken as pretext for a betting war, where our ancestors. Um, really thought that war itself is the crime, not war crimes alone, because once war starts, not only do a lot of soldiers die legally, but civilians do too. Um, Instability and refugee flows follow um, that may be moral outrages, but are legally allowed. Um, Taxes are diverted uh, to one thing rather than another, and you know, and and the results are are bad for all concerned. And so, my hope would be that we, as as people who are involved in genocide and Holocaust studies, as I have been, that we connect those fields more fully to peace studies, um, which you know, rise and fell after Vietnam and fell as concerns with genocide rose in our curricula and in our teaching. Um, you know, the truth is, you know, political scientists teach us that mass atrocity occurs most frequently in the context of war, not on its own. And so these aren't different agendas. They're deeply connected. And, you know, I, I think we're seeing um, more and more emphasis on let's say, transcending a narrower conception of what it means to be um, concerned with, with ethnic cleansing and, and genocide and, and war crimes and, and embedding it within a, a larger concern about you know, domination and violence um, 
you know, when war comes in general. Yeah, that's a, like your book, that's a thought provoking answer. And I'll have to sit and reflect on that. Uh, we've taken a lot of your time, Sam. Um, so I always end with the same two questions. Um, one is, uh, I've got a stack of exams next to me that I don't really feel like grading. Uh, I wonder if you can suggest a book or a movie or documentary, something that would be, that was important to you in the process of writing this book that the audience and I should watch or listen or hear. Well, you know, you've suggested a great Star Trek episode and, uh, <laughs> you know, I know that your listeners will, will, will stream that immediately. Um, I'm going to recommend, um, Jonathan Shell's uh, reporting on the Vietnam War, which was pretty central to me when I first started thinking about this topic. Um, it's, it, he wrote two books, um, one called The Bill Village of Ben Suk and one called The Military Half, which have now been combined into a book that you can order from your local bookseller or con multinational conglomerate called uh, The Real War. And it, it just reminds us of um, how much access journalists once had to American wars and what um, our, our soldiers were willing to do in front of those um, journalists because he reports just extraordinary um, brutality that he witnessed and was invited to witness towards um, prisoners. And obviously he reports on some of the most violent American counterinsurgency in, in, in the last hundred years. And I, I just think it's, it's worth keeping that in mind as we consider how our priorities have shifted, even though we're still at war. Um, and it's, it's just beautifully written. And uh, he, was, he was a poet uh, as much as a reporter. And uh, he died a few years ago, but is, is still very much worth reading. Yeah, that's a thread that we don't have time to untangle, but the, the increasing willingness of militaries in the West to allow journalists to report on what they're doing is a, is a fascinating strand. Um, but I can hear pens dropping across the country as people stop grading so that they um, can read this. It's, uh, I know that it's hard to make professors stop grading, but maybe you've done that. Um, and the second question is simple, if maybe unfair. Uh, what are you working on now? So I'm, I'm actually getting a sabbatical in, in the spring and going to the University of Oxford to give um, some lectures on Cold War liberalism. And that'll be a small book. And after that, I'm trying to develop a project on the rise of what I'm calling gerontocracy. You know, we're likely heading into a presidential campaign that will feature the, not just the oldest president, but the oldest presidential challenger, if it's Joe Biden versus Donald Trump. And I think across our politics, we're seeing how the, our moral success in extending the human lifespan has begun to have political consequences that were neither planned nor foreseen that have, have involved the concentration of power um, at, at, at the older end of the age spectrum to the detriment of those trying to launch their lives. And so I want to shift topics entirely away from, you know, the books we've discussed to do something about our, our American society and 
the consequences of of aging in our time. They sound like fascinating projects, and I wish you well, and I hope that you'll come back on the New Books Network, if not maybe on this channel for that one, but uh, and talk about them when they're done. But for now, have a great rest of your semester, and I really appreciate talking to you. Thank you so much.